0: Welcome to episode 457 with my guest, Josh Peck. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. I'm not a therapist. Uh, I'm a former stand up comedian, TV host, jackass, man about town, knight. Did I never tell you I'm a knight? Uh And I wear the armor around because otherwise, how are people going to know you're a knight? And I got to tell you, going out for a long walk, walking the dog in armor, not fun. Not fun. Although I do wear sandals. I don't wear the metal knight boots. <laughs> Hey, if you guys have not yet subscribed to this podcast, uh, please do so. That would really help it out. It, um, is more attractive to advertisers the more people that are subscribed to it. And, um, yeah, it's a cheap way for you to help out. You can also become a monthly donor through Patreon or PayPal. If you do it through Patreon, uh, you can sometimes get bonus content or uh you'll get raffle guesses when i make a a cutting board or something else and i'm raffling it off and the links to all the stuff i talk about are in the the show notes for for the episode and the website for the show is mentalpod.com and mentalpod also the social media handles you can uh follow us at i uh Oh, let me give a shout out to our sponsor for today, betterhelp.com. If you guys have never tried online therapy, I really recommend betterhelp.com. I love not having to leave my house every Monday afternoon. I have a video session with my therapist, Donna, and she helps me so, so much. I, I really love it. So if you're interested, go to betterhelp.com slash mental make sure you include the slash mental so that they know you're coming from this podcast and then just fill out a questionnaire and if they have a counselor they think is a good match for you, they will match you up with one and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18. Before we get to the interview, I just want to read one uh, awful-some moment This is, uh, for those of you that are new to the podcast, there's about a dozen different surveys that uh, listeners fill out anonymously. And this is one of them. It's Awful Some Moments. And the word awful meaning something that was awful at the time and in hindsight is kind of awesome. And this is filled out by a guy who calls himself cringeworthy. He writes, I suffer from severe depression, debilitating anxiety, ADHD, and a giant dash of OCD, which manifests itself as a preoccupation with my penis. I'm 45 years old, relatively happily married, and a former high school history teacher. Anyway, I've also hated that I was born with something called hypospadias, spadias, which means that my pee hole, technically known as the urethra, is sort of in the wrong position. In my case, it's located toward the bottom of the glands or head part of the penis. Sorry to go into so much detail, but it looks a little weird, and who wants to have a weird or deformed penis? No guy, that's for sure. I didn't lose my virginity until I was nearly 30 to a very understanding woman who didn't give a shit about my weird dick. My wife has never cared either, but Paul... My OCD doesn't care about anything rational. I still fixate on the fact that my manhood is flawed. So to seek validation, I occasionally post photos of it on various social media sites dedicated to dick pics. I know this is stupid. I know this is a bit bizarre. But I do it. And when complete strangers tell me it's not so bad that nobody's perfect, that dicks come in all shapes and sizes, you'd think I'd feel better. Nope. I can't turn my brain off about this issue. Anyway, anyway, here comes the awfulsome part of the situation. I just snapped my latest bathroom shot of my weird dick when I accidentally posted it on Instagram for all of my followers to see, including my boss, the high school principal. I am no longer employed as a history teacher. Oh my God, Paul. Oh my God. Wishing you well. The upside, I hated teaching anyway. I'm glad to be out of it.
1: Nobody's Nobody's cool and everyone's
0: scared and we're just all in in this together. together. There was no joy Overeating Apathy doesn't leave any marks Numbing out Physically I wish that I was a girl
1: Panic attacks were so violent Rudderless They were mistaken for seizures Shot coke in my neck The TV was talking to me Romantically, I am becoming the woman that I feared He said, there's going to be a sack of the hunger, spake Nothing's real And I'm going to die Sometimes I just go, hey, I can't deal Just beyond broken I want out You have to, like, fantasize about the person I'm with I'm gonna stop it Fucking someone else It's okay to be
0: A lot of you probably know from the Nickelodeon show uh Josh and Drake that was the what mid 2000s
1: yeah it was on till um we we shot it till 2009
0: You got a uh also you got a podcast called Curious which is uh doing great
1: I do have a podcast called Curious, where I interview people I'm fascinated by. Uh, One person in particular, Paul Gilmartin, (laughs) coming on the show soon. What an episode.
0: Uh, You're also a guy who uh, bottomed out with drugs and alcohol and got sober. And now you've been sober, what, 12 years, something like that? 11 years. 11 years. Yeah. Wow. Uh, You were born in Manhattan.
1: I was, yeah. I was born in uh, in New York City on around Murray Hill area where I grew up. And my mom, you know, single mom. We sort of uh, so we would make a pilgrimage to South Florida every time we ran out of money. Cause, and what uh,
0: was in South Florida? Cocaine.
1: My grandmother. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, yeah, cocaine with legs. Yeah,
1: not bad. <laughs> my grandmother, or as uh, you know, the streets like to call her the godmother. Um, yeah, and. uh Yeah, and so just as a kid, we would sort of make our way back and forth from Florida to New York, depending on our financial state.
0: And was your grandmother wealthy, or she would just bail your mom out?
1: She'd bail us out. Yeah. And she, uh, you know, my mom was, you know, in hindsight now, especially having a nine-month-old son, what my mom was able to sort of balance was pretty unreal. And for most of my childhood, we were like reasonably middle class, but then there were just sort of moments where – the bottom fell out and uh and so then we'd go and get a little help from my grandmother and and also the cost of living was cheap and i had asthma my mom was like this is an easy one warm weather yeah cheap rent and grandma buying us dinner at ruby tuesdays what more could you ask right all right and how,
0: how do you think it affected you if it did uh emotionally kind of being uprooted did you have friends back home in new york that you missed were you able to adjust in Miami how long would you be in uh, Miami or I'm assuming Miami Where in Florida uh, like
1: uh, Boca Raton I like and- how
0: I just you know totally just Jew you out yeah, yeah <laughs> clearly he went to Miami there's no other city that Jewish people go to in no, Florida the
1: Jews go I mm. mean Miami if you're Jewish and or you're Latin or you're like some version of Euro trash not to shit on Miami it's a right. lovely place but I feel like if you're a Jew and you make the pilgrimage to Florida it's Boca Raton like that's where yes. we flourish. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um but yeah, I mean, I think the, the reality is is that the one sort of constant that I can track throughout my life, especially as a young person, be it having a single mom, being overweight, being into sort of theater and performance um at a time where when you were a young boy, it was like more on trend to be in the Little League Mm -hmm. and Swiss Army Knives, I just felt painfully different from Mm -hmm. Jump. And it just seemed like there was never going to be a moment in which I was going to get over that hump, like that there would be something that would ground us the way that it seemed my other friends had some grounding because we were, you know, we just, my mom and I were, were quite different.
0: Did you feel in a way like, uh, that the universe was just indifferent to you? Did you, did you believe in a, a greater picture or did you just believe this is just kind of random chaos and make of it what you will? Or did you, was that just something you didn't contemplate? Because I know when we're little kids sometimes, we're grasping to understand why there's injustice or why we're struggling or feel different or et cetera, et cetera. I'm just curious to know in your young mind back then how you made sense of your discomfort.
1: Well, I'm, I'm interested, like, when do you think for you, because for me, it seems as though I dealt with impunity, like I lived a life where I was sort of joyfully unaware of, uh, you know, the the trappings of existence, um, till probably ballpark five or six, mm-hmm. and then a light turned on. And it, it was a, a mishmash of... You don't have a dad. So it was like men in my life, like my friends' dads who like tried to do this like bullshit passive-aggressive over-assertion of self of of like, well, you'll have a dad while you're at, you know, Andrew's house. I'll be your dad for the next three hours. And or it was because I was fat. It was and, you know, being overweight, especially as a kid. And probably, I don't know, Jewish people, we just, you know, we have a lot of opinions on things, especially other Jewish mothers. But it just seemed like everyone had their eye on me about, like, my weight Hmm. and had an opinion about it and the best way to go about it. And so, you know, like, you don't want to be the kid at the birthday who, you know, asks for the third slice of pizza and then your friend's mom goes... I'm gonna to have to call your mom and ask. And you're like, "Fuck!" <laughs>
0: like, that must have been humiliating.
1: It's super humiliating. And yeah, you just know, you just get that feeling like there's this amalgamation of of things. I, I remember once distinctly sitting with my mom at like nine years old, and my mom telling me something about her and and her upbringing and just kind of like it basically just sort of solidified the idea to me that I wasn't going to ever probably have a normal family state like and I don't know and it wasn't anything in particular it wasn't like she dropped some big hammer on me it just was like me coming to this realization of like any version or projection I had of an idea that maybe one day Mm -hmm. we'll get the picket fence and dad will come home and We'll just be financially secure and, and I'll be thin and have a girlfriend. All of that flew out the window. And I remember sitting with her and saying to her, Could we be any more different? And like that was my call. Like, could we be any more different
0: from other families? Yeah. Yeah. Would a, a fair word to use be that you felt unsettled?
1: Well, no, but I know I, because... What
0: was the feeling that you were looking for? Uh, continuity?
1: I think, I think settled is, is a good word as far as just in the moments of financial insecurity. Right. Because there were definitely moments in which, you know, we had to move out of our apartment. Mm-hmm. And it was funny. My mom, like, it, it seemed as though whenever I got a video game system, which was you always sort of wanted uh, to to uh, keep up with your your peers and mm-hmm. so it seemed like they got you know whatever new playstation was there but if i if something like i remember i got a nintendo 64 and 2 weeks later we had to move out of our apartment and i think it was like my mom going i don't have much dough left and this is about to be a shitty summer mm-hmm. so wherever we stay there'll be some kind of tv there let me get let me get them a nintendo So at least if we're in a shitty, you know, studio apartment for the next couple months, this will be distracting.
0: That's a pretty intuitive mom move. Mm. You know, I mean, that shows that she was in in some ways in tune to her kids needs, because I think a lot of parents, they, they wouldn't have gotten how important video games are to a kid at at that age even though they play them a lot i don't think they understand the emotional component i think they just think oh the kid's bored or yeah. he's you know lazy or whatever whatever they want to use they don't understand that it's our first one of our first senses of ourselves being good at a video game or you know what what were your your favorite video games, do you remember? Oh,
1: my God. Nintendo 64, it was like late 90s. It was GoldenEye and Mario Kart. Or as my wife would correct me and say, Mario Kart, you fucking idiot. <laughs> She's like, who talks like that? Mario. Um, but you're so right. And that's why when you ask about the unsettled part, it's like I push back on it only because my mom was so strong in a good way she really as best she could took on the role of both parents i had an unwavering sometimes uh, bordering on suffocating amount of love and security and knowing that even in moments of 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 discomfort or or being unsettled to your point that i knew somehow like i had this person this tigress mother who had my back at every turn <laughs> And so it was sort of living in both these worlds of like, I know this circumstance is shitty and God, I, I'm so not a fan of what's going on here. And yet deep, deep down on such a subconscious level, I knew that I that she'd take care of us.
0: And where was your dad?
1: Never met him. He was in, from what I know, he was an older guy, mm-hmm. uh, hooked up with my mom when he was in his early 60s had a whole other family kids and a wife said that he was separated but who knows and he i know that he moved to florida where you know Jews go to retire <laughs> and uh and yeah just didn't really didn't want anything to do with us
0: what's it feel like saying that um are you are you used to it does does it not cuz for me hearing mm. that yeah it it's it's so intense
1: what which part
0: that the man that fathered you that you never met him mm. and that he wasn't really interested in meeting you that's heartbreaking
1: yeah i I, obviously, and and hopefully before the the pod is over, you'll let me gush about you for a little bit because I'm such a fan of the podcast and
0: don't deflect
1: and you. <laughs> but you know, I, I I only qualify that as knowing I know through the pod that you you know obviously your dad was in your life, and I hear that it, it's a funny trend amongst people who've had a dad. And so my dad is deceased now. I know that, but. Because you killed him, I murdered. You did him.
0: finally meet him. Yeah, yeah, and I, I let him. Like know. an episode of Peaky Blinders.
1: Yeah, or Dexter. <laughs> go go ahead. I got the final the final word in. Yeah. Um, and so uh, you know, while while he was alive, people could not believe that I, I didn't have a real desire to meet him, and it was only people who had a father. Mm-hmm. Anyone who didn't. Or perhaps didn't have a good relationship with their dad, were like, yeah, fuck it. Who cares? Right. Who needs it?
0: I mean, who would want to meet somebody that didn't want to meet you?
1: Yeah. And it was such an odd thing because I grew up not knowing what I was missing because it wasn't like he was around for a couple of years, which I think would have been worse. Right. He was just never there. I would create stories that I would tell people about him. So, for a long time, my dad was from Morocco. Then other times, he was from Spain. I like that you went European. That's a nice touch. Sephardic Jew. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, where are the Sephardics from? They're from fun, exotic places. Not like Poland and Russia, like most of us. You must have been a good
0: student. I mean, what kid comes up with Morocco? Most kids don't even know that Mexico is our neighbor.
1: (laughs) I was tempted to say Tangier.
0: Wow. (laughs) Wow.
1: (laughs) Um. But I had free reign over the memory I had created of him. And then then oddly, once I got into my 20s and I got sober and I became self-sufficient and my adolescence, like becoming a man had sort of happened in a weird way. And I had gotten through sobriety and lost all this weight and all these like really seminal moments of my life. And I had done it without him. And I said, well, I know what he gets. He gets a kid that doesn't need anything from him now. And is like a fully fledged human. I don't need his money. I don't need him for anything. What do I get? I get an old dad in his 80s who never wanted anything to do with me. So I think... And then with that all that being said, when my mom randomly googled him when I was 26 and she called me and said, "Sorry, honey, but your your dad passed away" cuz she found the obituary. It hurt. Yeah. It was just cuz I think maybe yeah, by now I I might have just out of curiosity met him. Yeah.
0: What were some of the, if you did have fantasies of what it would have been like to have had a dad, Mm. were there any kind of fantasies that you painted?
1: I guess it would have been at its simplest, and this is no knock against my mom, it would have been a balance from what I got from my mom. So How so? My mom, you know, is a nervous, wonderfully nervous Jewish mother who mm-hmm. didn't want her big fat son to rollerblade.
0: <laughs> I got gotcha. you. You just you just said it all dude. You just that could have been really the Hey Josh, how are you? My mom was a Jewish nervous mom who didn't want her fat kid to rollerblade. Josh, thanks for coming. <laughs> We can fill in all the rest. Yeah.
1: A little bit. So, yeah, a dad who would have been like, no, like, put on your fucking rollerblades and let's go. And you're going to get hurt. But who cares? Yeah. Like, that's what you do. Or let's go to this sporting game or let's go shoot. I don't know. What do guys do? Mm-hmm. Guns? <laughs> like, Let's go do guy shit.
0: Do you ever find yourself kind of emotionally holding back certain uh, holding back certain information to kind of emotionally protect your mom and her her nervousness do, do you find yourself becoming anxious about her anxiousness
1: yeah i mean i despite all those sort of trappings it as i've gotten older i realize how fucking cool my mom was and that she was sort of like I mean, she was, you know, in the, you know, women's live movement and she was a self-made, she is a self-made business person and she, you know, she, she wasn't, you know, like the Upper East Side Jewish Mm -hmm. girl or the Long Island, like she was in it. She was in shit. So she has sort of a lot of her isms as they do for most of us have dissipated. To Mm -hmm. a certain extent.
0: I mean, who wouldn't be nervous in her situation? Holy shit.
1: Totally. Holy
0: shit. A single mom in Manhattan in the 80s with a a child from outside of, you know, a child from an affair.
1: Yeah. Wow. Wow. I mean, my mom has the best stories about, she owned a, um, uh, uh, the headhunting business in the sixties mm-hmm. in New York with like a little storefront and she would get people jobs. And she would tell me stories about how once, you know, two guys came in with guns and tied her up, robbed the place. And she's there going like, guys, like I- I'm a headhunter. I'll get you a job.
0: <laughs> you <laughs> really? don't need to do this.
1: Yeah. <laughs> like you're in the perfect place, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and moments like that. And, and, you know, again, to your point, it was the eighties and being a self-made woman and. Just, you know, where she would work, do these huge multimedia shows that she would be the director of and that she wasn't allowed to stay in the same hotel as some of her male bosses that, you know, the women had to stay at a different hotel or sometimes she just wouldn't be paid for things because they could. And wow. I don't think that, that sound. I mean, that sounds incredibly challenging.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it does. Yeah, it does. So if you could go back, uh, you know, my question that I like to ask everybody, if you could go back in a in a time machine and talk to your younger self at his most challenging, what what age roughly would it be and what do you think he would want to to hear or experience?
1: Oh. It's so it's so hard, right? Cuz isn't the the answer we all want to give ourselves as a kid, and maybe I'm projecting, is like, "Don't worry, it's all going to work out, right?" Mm-hmm. But there's no way we could hear that then, um, I don't and know. nobody
0: and nobody would anticipate that what the older person would say. Your your biggest issues are really just going to be you sleep too much and your shoulder hurts all the time,
1: <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean it's such a fucked up. And then you also like it's so hard because and I I've, I've said this when I qualify um when I talk about like my journey in sobriety. Mm-hmm. And I'll say from as far back as I can remember, I felt too much, I thought too much, I was a ball of self-centered fear and discomfort and overanalyzing and if you had seen me at 9 or 10 years old you would have said get that kid a drink <laughs> <laughs> cuz he needs to cool out yeah he's in his head too much so i so i say that only to say i'm not quite sure i could have said anything to that kid but i yeah i mean inevitably i would have i, I really would have said you're doing great you're doing great and I think that's what I would tell my son now. Like, you're just, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. But that sounds so corny, doesn't it?
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I I think at a certain point in our lives that would sound corny. And then I I think if if we have that epiphany or that moment of bottoming out and surviving it and finding a new way of, coping that that does ring true Mm -hmm. that does ring true that you are going to be okay because i mean what does okay mean for somebody who has all their financial stuff taken care of that would mean being comfortable probably in your own skin or finding true love and for some people it would mean just being able to pay the mortgage or have health insurance or not have student loans and have to be living with your parents who drive you fucking crazy
1: right yeah i mean if i'm being truly honest i think the only thing i would have wanted to hear at 10 is you're gonna lose the weight (laughs) for real like it don't worry dude you're gonna lose it all and you're you're gonna pass for normal one day
0: that's so funny because for me it was i wanted somebody to say you're gonna grow because when i was 16 i was 4'10 and weighed 85 pounds wow. and and I thought I'm never going to grow and I, I went to the University of uh, Chicago and they did some tests and they they said based on the test you're going to be within an inch of 5'10 and I just remember thinking oh my god I would have I would have killed to just be five four. I would have been like that that would be awesome but when I heard that and sure enough within like 4 years of that i i grew wow. to to 5'10 and for the most part i think put it put it behind me but because you don't shrink you know losing right. losing weight i imagine there's always the fear that you're going to you're going to gain it back or no
1: no there's no uh, there's no fear that i'll gain it back anymore it's more of like can i be okay with that when you are 100 pounds overweight as a kid, you're never gonna look. You're never gonna look quite right with your shirt off. <laughs> like it's right. the mini wars now. I got you. Yeah, and it's just accepting that fact that like, there's there's a little bit of a uh, the, there's a little leftover from the battle. Mm-hmm. But
0: and what do you think or feel when you look in the mirror and you see I, what I imagine it's like loose skin or what? Yeah. What?
1: Well, I had some surgery to take that off when I was like 21, but there's always going to be like little parts, little things. And, Mm -hmm. um, it's more so when I, you know, when you just take your shirt off at the pool and Mm -hmm. just people like, and you can fucking tell everyone, like, it's just the slightest, most nuanced double take and it's very generous, but I know what you're thinking and I'm thinking it too. Um, but yeah, it's the worst. It's. It's totally bad and no amount of like validation from the other sex or, you know, what the scale says mm-hmm. or whatever. I mean, it's weird. You know, if you get good and overweight, you do some damage it's, that's hard to, to correct. But then it also is weirdly like life in reverse because one of my greatest joys, and I don't know if you can identify, is going on Facebook and looking at all my friends who got fat who were effortlessly thin in high school, and I was the big fat fatty. (laughs) And now, like, Jim is like, got an extra 50 on him. And I'm like, ah, Jim, so thin back in the day. (laughs) Like, it's unbelievable. Because now, I mean, living in where we live and whatnot, I mean, it's fair to say that the people you grew up with, like, 50% are probably overweight, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so when you you're like the 32 year old who's in shape, I'm like, all right,
0: yeah.
1: making strides. <laughs>
0: it's a little victories. Do any thoughts or feelings come up when you have your clothes off in front of your wife? Um, if if that's too personal of a question,
1: no, not okay. at all. I'm I'm in. Now with my wife, I mean, it's so I always laugh when people like will say. You know, people like to joke about like when they bring up threesomes and stuff. And I'm like, I just can't believe one person has agreed to be in the room with me. <laughs> Two? What are you nuts? <laughs> let's, let's not push it. <laughs> yeah. Like that, the extra person might tell the person that I'm with that, you know, what are you thinking? Look at him. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, after, you know, we've been together for eight years and I'm, I've definitely married up and I'm okay with that. <laughs> and, we have a wonderful, like... We just feel wonderfully comfortable in front of each other. And I think that's... I think it's probably a testament to the both of us, yeah. you know? And and what's cool, or maybe it's not cool, but it's it's revealing about my wife, who's in perfect shape and grew up, like, beautifully svelte. And everyone in her family, they're, like, tall and thin mm-hmm. and won the genetic lottery. Like, my wife is still... Um, sort of um, besieged by insecurities about certain things that you know, it's, it's like no one's free of it. No, no one is free of it.
0: I, I watched a documentary one time on uh, models and the modeling industry, and they all every female model that they interviewed said that they disliked their body and that they weren't aware of any of their female. Peers that were comfortable with their body.
1: Yeah, but and then aren't the, but those models, right? Like I look at the guys, and some of them are eating pizza now. Paul, I don't know what it's like for you. If I eat pizza, like it's going to take days to recover. And these guys still have a six pack the next morning. It's just it's they're built yes. right.
0: Yeah, the, my girlfriend and I were at a coffee shop yesterday, and there was. A guy there, I, I assume he was probably a model, but he was just sitting there on his laptop. You know, he had a tank top on. And when, when I see guys like that sometimes, I'll just imagine what it's like to be them and what, what it would be like to go to the beach and be the best looking guy on, right? the, on the beach. And just to not that I'm, I'm, I, I want anything outside of my relationship. I'm extremely satisfied, but. To not have a head full of, oh Jesus! Can't you do some sit-ups? <laughs> well, you canceled the gym again today. <laughs> you know, today I was supposed to go to the gym at eleven thirty. I, I I canceled and I slept until one thirty-eight.
1: Great, you know.
0: Great. It's, I tr- I tried not to shame myself, but it. When I look at a guy like that, I think he must have some type of discipline in his life,
1: or maybe it's just genetics. I think both.
0: But he had like the swimmer's chest. You know how those guys have just the best, just the best chest. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I just think, what would it be like to just have that chest for a day and just be able to walk around and just look at the ripples of attention Uh. that, that you would get?
1: The ab lines, those ab lines that go, like, into your pants. I want to know what that is. Back dimples. I've thought about it all. (laughs) It's unbelievable. And I, I will blatantly say, maybe I don't really believe this, but, like, you know, going through what we've accrued or like what we've um, been through, we've accrued all these like experiences and life skills that are, are, I'm sure are of some value. (laughs) (laughs) Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) But like, I sometimes think like, would I give it all up to look like that? Sometimes. Yeah. Every now and then I'm like, maybe I would just like to be handsome and vapid.
0: Yeah. (laughs) When I'm watching the news, I think that would be nice. Right. to, To just not even understand like what's happening in the Middle East or to not to just think, oh, everything's going to work out with uh, our two-party system. Right. But most of the time, the way I will get myself out of the tailspin is I'll think, but you've wor- you've had to work on your personality because you were 4'10 at 16 years old. And it was uncomfortable in your house. You had to develop a sense of humor. And, you know, you've, you've built some... Uh, emotional muscles yes. that can benefit you. So fuck that guy.
1: <laughs> fuck that guy. And I, I think like, you know, they sometimes they'll talk about like, in in quotes, like attractive comedians, especially nowadays, or like, you'll look at like Chris D'Elia, who's a good looking dude, mm-hmm. or Nikki Glaser, who's, who's really pretty and i want to say like and it's not knocking them in any way it's just like yeah they're they're attractive for comedians mm-hmm. like they're they're nice looking normal people they're not supermodels like right. and so i have no doubt that they went through their own set of shit that made them incredibly funny yes you know
0: yeah i've never met somebody who's really funny that just soared through their childhood
1: it's impossible yeah have you ever been with anyone whether it was dating or just in a friend scenario where they were really attractive and they tried to be funny? Oh yeah. And did a part of you want to tell them like stop? Stop.
0: Stop. Right. Yeah, I, I it's so uncomfortable for me to be around people cuz it's not that they're that I I don't want to be around people that aren't funny. It's I don't want to be around people who are who are being inauthentic to who they are. Mm. Uh, I have lots of friends who aren't the least bit funny, but they're real. And that, to me, is a pleasure to be around. I think almost everybody has something about them that is interesting, that can kind of be glommed onto. And the real battle is is for that person to be comfortable with that thing about them that's unique. Even the friends of mine who who can be a pain in the ass, the ones who can recognize it, who can cop to it later and apologize— That's all I ask for in a friend. Yeah. And and that's what I hope I am as a friend.
1: I think you're so right. And I think the one thing that's even more breathtaking than a brilliant, like comedic performance or drama or what have you, is just someone being honest. Mm -hmm. Like when someone is willing to be vulnerable, especially – in a stand up special or any kind of performance, it's like you can't take your eyes off of it because no. you can't believe that they're willing to b- bear themselves in that way,
0: yeah, 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 I think it's why we go to the movies and read books, and we just want to know is everybody's inner sanctum similar to ours
1: was there was there a moment for you when that was confirmed? that you weren't alone with this.
0: Yeah, I think when I got sober. Yeah. I think that that, that was the beginning of it and then um, dealing with the childhood stuff in my next support group, that that was on an even deeper level cuz mm. I think that dealt with the scars whereas getting sober was I I was forced to see my own selfishness and fears. And there was a relief in knowing that because it, as you know, as a sober person, it provided you information about the prism that we had been filtering reality through. And if you suddenly understand how bad your prescription for your glasses are, then it's a little easier to kind of stay on the road Mm. knowing that your tendency is to warp, to make the problems too big when they're really not, or to... uh, you know become just engulfed in self and not be present for those around us or you know flippant remark when i'm uncomfortable in my skin that cuts somebody else yes. those are all the things i began to learn in in sobriety uh, i'm i i'd like to hear about your sobriety journey what 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 were your substances of choice and how did that how did that spiral take place?
1: Oh, I, I was on everything but skates. Really, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a I'm a garbage head, as the kids like to call it. I um, it was really whatever you had, and I I just see the correlation between. I lost a hundred pounds when I was seventeen, and. I didn't realize that that was sort of my first foray into overindulging in something to numb my feelings and to quiet my mind.
0: Were you using, uh, what, like Adderall? Or what were you, how did you lose the-
1: Healthy way, old fashioned. Oh, okay. Yeah, like I just- Diet and exercise? Diet and exercise. And just with no understanding that Oh, now I have this new body, but I still have the old brain. Mm -hmm. And I've removed my medication. And so when. Food, you mean? Yes. And so when I got offered to smoke a joint and took that first hit and felt that release and that deep breath that I had always been searching for. Um, Had that, food given you that? You know, f- it did, but I didn't know it. I was I so think. unaware. There was no epiphany with the food because it's indoctrinated since we're kids. It's yeah. a reward system. Mm-hmm. But I ate chocolate and gummy worms different than my fellows. Right. You know, I I was a kid where I'd come over to your house and all of a sudden Josh would disappear and you'd hear like, <laughs> like can I be going through your cabinets? And fucking hiding it. Oh, it was the worst. But going over to friends' houses and, of course, we never had the good snacks in my house. So if you opened up a closet and there were, like, fruit roll-ups and gushers and, you know, dunkaroos, it was like, put me away. Like, you guys go play outside. I'll be here. Like, I'll be manning the snack closet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, so... You know, it was like a quick progression of just like smoking weed and being able to check out at night. And I was Mm -hmm. like, this is beautiful. Like, I work out, I don't have to eat, I can, you know, get stoned, go to bed, and it's perfect. And it quickly progressed to dry goods and a myriad of other um, substances that, of course, the first time I tried it was uh, because there was a girl that I was helplessly in love with who I'd known for eight full days. And, (laughs) and I remember, you know, seeing this, this, uh, this, you know, powdery substance and thinking, Oh, that's only in movies. Like I've never, I never seen that in real life. And, and, uh, you know, inevitably you get offered it enough times and, and you finally sort of partake. And I, uh, and that sort of started this four-year deluge into this really, really dark period of um, some 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 really rough experiences. I, I had a. Had you been on TV yet? Yeah, I've been on TV since I was fourteen, or even before, since I was twelve.
0: So you were. Uh, still battling your your weight when you were doing the Nickelodeon show? Yeah. Okay. And so did the show end and then you lost the weight or did you lose the weight when you were on the show? Between seasons two and four. Wow. What the producers have to say about that?
1: You know, the creator of the show had always dealt with weight stuff. So I think that he weirdly felt like he was proud of me. In, in a funny way because I know that he had had his own struggle with that and so you know and to their credit and something that I, I am quite proud of the, I'm, there are many things I'm proud of um, when it comes to the show but one thing was that they didn't ever really take the easy way out like they didn't take the low hanging fruit of like being the fat sidekick Catching. there were you know there were definitely moments in which they kind of dance near it But they empowered me and they made me, you know, we were brothers and Drake was sort of the handsome musician and they were like, well, we need balance here. So he, we have to make him an idiot. So he's the handsome musician who's really not intelligent. And Josh will be the brilliant, funny, chubby kid. Gotcha. So it worked. Yeah. But they, I'm sure there were some meetings, right? (laughs) but I was never privy to it.
0: So when cocaine was introduced, was it in a show business atmosphere?
1: I think it just became like – I. It, no, it just became in like a Hollywood terribly cliche fucking – I felt like I had to make up for some time because here I was now like 17, 18, 19. I had lived this – a bit of like a pauper's life of like I was heavy and I was afraid to go out to the – to the dance or mm-hmm. to the sleepover or to the party because I just didn't like myself. And so now I've got this new body and I'm this new person and I'm basically playing a version of who I think I always wanted to be mm-hmm. and the people that I had like looked up to. And I, I talk about this when I qualify. I'll always say like, you know, I looked it up to people in the 27 club and Basquiat and Jim Morrison and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and then other people like Hunter S. Thompson, like all these gonzo kings that, you know, lived hard and and left their indelible mark on the world before they eventually died. And I'm like, and I romanticized thinking that I was going to do that. But the reality is I would have just been another asshole who like broke his mom's heart and was not the biggest thing to come out of Burbank, was just, you know... Another sad case. Mm-hmm.
0: The first person to die on rollerblades.
1: <laughs> How sad would that be? <laughs> <laughs> Wait. R-U-I. Rolling <laughs> under the influence. <laughs> so
0: what, what was your demise? What, was it just a, everything? Or was there any particular substance or habit that brought you to your knees? Was it just a slow progression? Was there a single event did you have a moment of clarity?
1: You know, my, my ruination came in like a myriad of forms and it, it was just me solely accruing all this wreckage of ruining work relationships. Cause I was still working in like different things. I was doing some movies and just, you know, at the time it, it, you, I guess you would just chalk it up to like sowing my wild oats and being 19 or 20 and just unaccountable. So I showing up
0: late hungover too
1: late like an hour late yeah. and yeah and just not looking my best mm-hmm. cuz i was just i was hard charging i i just wasn't able to to fully formulate um a a a version of reality at yeah. all times and yeah i was living a pretty i was living a pretty specific life for for a couple of years and and finally when it it all came To a head, it was like one of those beautiful moments of clarity in the sense of it wasn't anything cinematic. I, you know, I I was just so sick and tired of being sick and tired. It was more of the same. Mm -hmm. And I had a deep suspicion that this was going to be it. Like, I was not going to ever fill this hole in my soul. Mm -hmm. And it seemed, um, it it was uh, momentary. Like, I could feel this window of clarity, this moment. And I guess that's why it's a moment. Because I could tell, like, this is going to be fleeting. And I haven't hit total bottom yet or whatever version that looks like, what it would be for, for me. But it's coming. It and awaits. I'm just going to keep digging.
0: And so when you went to get help, what what were some of the things that you remember thinking or feeling?
1: I think, you know, I, I always say this, that you didn't tell me what was wrong with me. You told me what was wrong with you. And I identified. And I had walked around for so long feeling the way I did and everything I've talked about in the podcast and feeling utterly uncomfortable with life and an inability in which to live this life on life's terms. Like I was just mm. ill-equipped. It felt like everyone else had, had had been given a playbook that I just was not mm. given when I was born. And that everyone had a set of armor that I just didn't have. And so things hurt me more. And so I walked around thinking that for so long. And I thought, I'm reasonably articulate. I know a lot of words. Is it depression? Yeah, kind of. Is it anxiety? I got a little bit of that, but not really. I couldn't diagnose it. Mm -hmm. So I figured I was the only one. And if I'm the only one, I'm alone in this. And then you walk into the rooms and you go to a support group where you identify. And all of a sudden, people were telling my story. People thought the way I did. They drank and used the way I did. But they weren't a glum lot. You know, they were laughing, they were joyful, they were taking the piss out of each other. And in addition, they had families and careers and...
0: People trusted them.
1: Yeah. And so all of a sudden, in a moment, in a one-hour meeting, the idea that it was possible to live with the way my head worked and have a full life could happen. And I think at that, I mean, that's, that's the most pivotal moment of my life.
0: Yeah. What, if any tools, do you feel like you've developed to help cope today with when your feelings become overwhelming or your old thinking rears its head? What do you, what are, what are some ways that you could compare the, the old Josh and what he would have done to, you today.
1: I think it, it's it's uh, a gosh. It's just a number of things. It's like a certain level of acceptance. Um, it's age-old tenets of spirituality, right? It's mm-hmm. it's a lot of gratitude. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that it's, that if you want self-esteem, do esteemable things. Um. And it's you know it's truly like. I, I interviewed for my podcast um, this this brilliant guy named Safi Bakal and he's a, a physicist and, and has some experience in, in um, neuroscience and he's like, what well, we're finding more and more the way that depression looks in the brain is, is a trauma. Like it's an injury. It's a brain injury. And that addiction and depression and obsessive, like many of these things It's a, it's a, like, it's bad programming in a computer. So don't be surprised that it can't fix itself. You wouldn't be surprised. You wouldn't turn on your computer a year later and just think it worked again. Right. And so the idea that I learned of like, that you'll never be able to think your way out of it, that you must take the action and the brain will follow. Um, Acting your way into right thinking, I think was, was everything.
0: I love it. You want to do some fears and loves before we go?
1: Yeah, please. Yeah. Uh was there
0: anything else that you wanted to I think to share?
1: No, I mean I feel it feels great. Yeah. Good. Thank
0: you. Good. Uh let's let's start off with some fears. I'm afraid that I'm never gonna be able to break this habit of needing to eat sweets to fall asleep.
1: Mm raisin bran
0: i I do raisin bran too raisin bran (laughs) is like when i'm going to go healthy to (laughs) to (laughs) fall asleep
1: um oh man i fear that now with a nine-month-old son that because i don't have any framework for what a good father is that i'll never be able to truly measure up for him
0: wow that's a that's a deep one you went deep right out of the gate
1: yeah, I got I'll, I'll deviate. I'll no, no, I love it. I
0: love it. Um I'm afraid that my girlfriend is going to have trouble with her immigration issues and that it's going to take her a long time to get her residency.
1: Hmm. Um I'm afraid that my career will never look the way I want it to and that the world will think of me as yet another failed child actor.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm afraid that my hockey teammates secretly think that I'm much worse than I think I am.
1: Um, <laughs> I'm afraid that my wife is never going to stop hating the way that I chew. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm afraid of Gracie getting sick and dying before she's led a full life and that the pain of it will just be unbearable because she's the first dog that I have been the sole owner Mm. of. I've always shared ownership of dogs with. So there's always been somebody else that I know they're experiencing what I'm experiencing. Mm. And the thought of going through that on my own, even though I know there are people that love her and and would miss her, I, I think there's a, you know, you feel like their parent.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, I'm afraid I'm going to say or do something that's going to get me canceled one day.
0: I'm afraid that I – I know I've done this one before, but it's it's a recurring fear of mine is that I have misplanned for retirement, Uh and I will be filled with so much regret and poverty that I will what will be even worse than my surroundings will be the discomfort of being sick at myself for not having planned more,
1: oh man, that is so good <laughs> i <laughs> i I identify with that totally i um let's see
0: let's do one more each and then go to love's.
1: Yeah, I'm afraid uh I'm afraid that I'm becoming one of those people that can't hear from the other side and that I just have a uh, I I can't what's the best way to describe it? I'm I have an inability in which to in our political climate to really listen to people that don't agree with me.
0: Mm. That's a good one. Let's just go right to loves.
1: Yeah. Uh I
0: love when I'm uh taking Gracie for a skate and she takes <laughs> when she takes a really huge dump and I'm <laughs> and I'm picking it up with the baggie, uh I always say to her and like a little <laughs> a soft little voice Well, that's very unladylike.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, man. I love taking my son out for a walk every morning and watching as he falls asleep in his stroller. And then just putting on your podcast and listening while he's asleep as we walk down Wilshire Boulevard.
0: I love laying in bed with my girlfriend and, um, just, just being there with each other, just being present in that, that moment. Sometimes we're not even saying anything, but we're, I think like as close as two humans can can be in that in that moment and it's such a safe comfortable feeling mm.
1: i love watching my mom with my kid and knowing that i never thought she could love anyone more than me and now i'm pretty convinced she loves him more than me and it's also nice to have some of the love be put on someone else <laughs>
0: I love playing guitar along to a song that I didn't think I would be able to play any part of and I find myself able to play just a little part of it and and I get goosebumps.
1: I love when... I love when my wife and I go to any kind of event or anything where other people are and we both observe something and then we both get in the car or get home and we have our follow up session about the night where we obliterate people's character (laughs) and have a play by play of all like the drunken weirdness that happened around us.
0: Uh, I I like that too. When I'm out with my girlfriend and and I'll say something you know about somebody passing by or something that somebody's wearing, especially when we're walking around Venice, which is just a hotbed of eccentric people. And and I'll say something that makes her laugh about somebody really eccentric walking <laughs> walking by, and we both and we both laugh. Let's do one more each.
1: I love. Um, it's my. It's my turn. Yep. Oh, I love. Um, let's see. I love sitting with my best friend Len. Shout out Len, and <laughs> he's another sober buddy, but he's been my best friend since we were thirteen. So we sit on his porch and we take hits off of his e-cigarette. I'm not proud of this gang, mm-hmm. <laughs> and. We just talk a mess of shit and vape the way grown men shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, well, on that note, I love sitting in my hammock, smoking a cigar and knowing I probably look ridiculous, but it feels awesome.
1: I love it. Yeah.
0: Josh, thanks so much. People can find your podcast. It's called uh, Curious. Uh, do you have a website as well? Mm-hmm.
1: I don't, but Curious is available everywhere. Podcasts are available. And Paul, this is an honor. Um, You know, you're just doing special work here. And any version of art helps people, right? It gives them some version Mm -hmm. of escape. But this feels like um, art of a higher order. And it helps a lot of people, so I feel really lucky to be here. Oh,
0: thanks, dude. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. What a nice man. Really cool getting to know him. And uh, I think his interview with me on his podcast is going up in a couple of days, so if that interests you, go check that out. One of our uh, sponsors for the podcast today is Attitude, and they make 100% organic bamboo sheets, and oh my God, are they soft. Holy moly, they are my favorite sheets that I have ever, ever had. They have a non-toxic manufacturing process. They're hypoallergenic. They're antimicrobial. They're breathable, and that regulates your temperature to improve the quality of your sleep. So why not try Etitude? These amazing sheets have a 30-day risk-free trial. If you're not fully satisfied, you can return your sheets for a full refund. They even cover shipping on returns. I don't know why you would return them because I love them. They are soft as silk, breathable as linen, but at the price of cotton. Attitude sheets. Did I just stumble over attitude? Let's say it one more time. Attitude sheets. You are going to love them. And when you support our sponsors, you support the show. And right now, you guys, the listeners, will get 20% off their sheet set. Say that fast 20 times. You guys get 20% off their sheet set and free shipping. Just text MENTAL to 64000. The only way to get 20% off your set of Attitude sheets and free shipping is to text MENTAL to 64,000. That's M-E-N-T-A-L to 64,000. Message and data rates may apply. We are also sponsored today by Roman Erectile Dysfunction. A lot of people aren't comfortable talking about it, and for some reason I'm not. Maybe because on this show we talk about anything and everything, and I've been pretty open about most of the struggles in my life, And uh, ED is something that I do deal with. And I highly recommend to anybody who's suffering from it to look into trying medication for it. It uh, makes a big difference to me and my relationship. So with Roman, you get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. The doctor will work with you to find the best treatment plan, and if medication is appropriate, Roman will ship it to you with free two-day shipping, and the whole process, super straightforward, simple, and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com mental and complete an online visit. Erectile dysfunction used to be tough to tackle, but now there's Roman. So go to getroman.com/mental to get a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's getroman.com/mental for a free visit to get started. Let's do it a third time. Getroman.com/mental. We got some great surveys to to read, and uh, I don't know if I'll be able to get through all of them. I always bite off more than I can read, but uh, let's give it a shot. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself gen x blah she identifies as straight she's in her 40s was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment she's never been sexually abused but she has been physically abused she writes it wasn't considered abnormal when i was growing up uh in the 70s and 80s but i was quote spanked with a belt and once my dad rushed me and knocked me over as a teen any positive experiences with the abusers. He was my dad and I love him, but I will always have those images of him taking off the belt and of him knocking me down. We did go through a period where I didn't speak to him for five years in my 20s. Darkest thoughts. I think and dream about sex with women. I read erotic stories about women, but when it comes down to it, the thought of actually going down on a woman is too much. I've also had horrible dreams about physically abusing my daughter, smacking her, and I've had dreams where she is murdered by a pedophile or run over by a bus. Horrible dreams that when I awake, I have to force myself to stay awake for a while so I don't slip back into the same horrible dreams. Darkest Secrets I turned the condom inside out after my daughter's father left, and I put it inside me. It had spermicide, but at least one brave swimmer made it. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Lesbian, comma gay, comma and domination fantasies. Most of the guys I've been intimate with know, so I'm not new to sharing this. Is there anything you'd like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would tell my daughter's father he is right to hate me, but I can't live with my kiddo knowing I forced her creation. What, if anything, do you wish for? My student loans to be paid off. My credit is absolutely ruined for life. I can't ever dig out of this hole. I will never own a home or a brand new car. Have you shared these things with others? The people closest to me already know. I think they think I suck. How do you feel after writing these things down? Same old, mostly. I'm a little afraid this will somehow get to my kiddo or her dad, though I can't imagine how. Thank you for sharing that. And, man, my heart goes out to people that are buried in student debt. And it also makes me angry that as wealthy of a nation as we are, that that we don't financially support people more and getting their their education. It's just, uh, I'm not going to go off on a rant. But thank you for filling out that survey. Excuse me. This is um, from the Love Survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself CJ. And he writes, I love the first three minutes of a concert. The lights go out, the crowd starts to scream. You can see the silhouettes of the band members take the stage. They start their first song. The crowd crowd starts jumping and singing along. The hairs in the back of the neck stand up, and I get goosebumps. I feel like something amazing is gonna happen. And it is just for us lucky people who got tickets. No one else will see this or hear this. This is a unique moment to be enjoyed in the moment. I have no thoughts of stress or work. Only focus on this current moment. That's beautiful. Thank you for that. I do love that. I do love that too. I love too like when the the roadie comes out to do a, a sound check and People mistakenly think it's the band. They get all excited and then they're like, oh, oh, no. Jimmy writes, I love having a good conversation with my friends, such a good conversation with my friends, that I don't want to leave the room to pee. That's why Jimmy wears a diaper. His friends don't know. They just, all they know is he is a great listener. This is the shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Keeping It Real in the O.C.D. He is in his 40s. He identifies as straight. He was raised in a slightly dysfunctional house. He's never been sexually abused, but he has been emotionally abused. He writes, although my parents are kind people who never intentionally hurt me in any way, they did keep me at a small-town school where I was verbally bullied for years. Anyone who stood out in any way was a target for emotional abuse in that environment. Any positive experiences with the abusers? A little. I was on sports teams with the bullies, and we had to work together on the field or court, so there was some level of cooperation with them. Darkest Thoughts. My greatest obsession has been the fear that I would snap and kill my children by breaking their necks. When I'm at my worst, I'm almost too terrified to be around the people I love most in the world and want to lock myself up somewhere. Darkest Secrets Besides the obsession noted above, at times my OCD has convinced me, colon, I have eight, might lose control and laugh hysterically at any time, would not be able to urinate, was a rapist, would be accused as an adult of pedophilia for playing doctor as a child, and would kill my wife. I wish the quote normal people who say they're quote so OCD because they like a tidy desk knew what a living hell this disorder really is. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I am so turned on by the idea of having sex with a big, beautiful woman, quite heavy with lots of curves. It turns me on just to write those words. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would apologize to my children for being lost in my head. What, if anything, do you wish for to someday overcome my OCD? Have you shared these things with others? Never the sexual fantasies. I feel like no good could come out of sharing it. How do you feel after writing these things down? Excited at the idea that Paul would share them with the world. Terrified that someone would ever find out that I had written them. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? For OCD sufferers, get yourself cognitive behavioral therapy and never settle for a therapist who's not fully on your side. Amen. Amen. Thank you for filling all that out, man. You guys I say it all the time on the podcast, but I'm so grateful for how deep you guys go in the in the surveys. It's um I, I just feel really um I don't even know what the word is. Privileged. This is from a rarely taken survey called Memorable Vacation Arguments, and I don't think I've read this one on the podcast before, but if I have, forgive me, Uh, or don't forgive me, and go fuck yourself. What do you think of that? This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Cody, and she writes, "Uh, In 2015, I was 16 years old. With alimony fever, my Nana decides for us to take a cruise spontaneously. Nana, sister, mother, and I drive to New Orleans for vacation. To board our cruise to Mexico. My Nana and I awake early in the morning and they are still gone from the night before. My anxiety is high so I go look for them. I didn't know where to go so I guess I just kind of waited around the front of the hotel for something to happen. Eventually my sister comes and doesn't like that I am on her ass. She throws her hot coffee on the ground in front of me. I sigh and usher her inside to safety. We're going up the elevator and she begins to tell me words. The only ones I remember are, you're just mad because everyone knows you're not even a real part of this family. My heart sank and I gently replied, ditto. The pin was pulled and the grenade that is my sister unleashed. The elevator doors open and she shoves me out, pins me against the wall and sucker punches me in the face. A loud thunder sound happens in my ears and I turn to see my drunken mother barreling down the hotel hallway and I stick around long enough to see her linebacker my sister out from in front of me, into the air, and slammed onto the ground with a loud crunch. My sister let out a bloody scream and I escape, as I always do, to the nearest stairwell. I gather myself and go back to the room where my mother is on top of my sister, choking her so badly that her face is blue and eyes bulging. Long story short, that was the first of many hotels we were asked to leave. I never saw my mom on that cruise, and the only thing she has to say about that trip when asked is what a fucked up mess my sister is and how amazing the buffet was. Oh my. Thank you for that. This is a happy moment filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself Elsinore Rigby. I assume that's not a typo. And her happy moment, when I get into bed, my kitten cuddles up, belly so close to my face I can feel his breath. Sometimes he puts his little paw on my cheek. Oh, Gracie, do you hear that we're talking about animals? I, I I love that moment when you tell a dog to stop barking, but they squeeze a couple more in and they'd be like, burr, 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 burr. <laughs> oh and I do love w- gracie I do love that that moment when animals put their their front leg around you and it and you kind of convince yourself that it's an arm and that they're way more human than they really are. Isn't that what we really want? Is just an animal to act human and give us all their unconditional love, but we don't have to listen to their bullshit. I wonder how annoying animals would be if they could talk. This is from the love survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Gandhi Glitch, and she writes, I love the feeling when I score a domination victory in civilization. I feel like an all-powerful being that can conquer anything. Oh my God. Does that one ring true for me? Even though I haven't played civilization in years, that no other v- type of victory And civilization feels as good as the domination victory. You can win a cultural victory. You can win, I think, an economic victory. Um, There's a couple of different ways that you can can win them. But I... Oh, yeah. Just destroying. Just letting that dark part of the brain out and just ruthlessly taking over other countries. And mm. I love, too, in civilization when the piece of land you're given for your first settler to settle has gold has water just has all the right resources and you know just for the next 20 hours you're going to have an advantage and crush humanity You that survey makes me want to start playing civilization again so if For the next month, there is no podcast. Blame the person that filled that survey out. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Donna A. She identifies as gay. She's in her 30s. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Yes, and I never reported it. My aunt, who was my babysitter, was sexually abusive. She's also been emotionally abused, and parents provided for physical needs, but were extremely neglectful when it came to emotional needs. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, my aunt was my second mother, and we had great moments together, although it's impossible to bring myself to think of what those moments were. Darkest Thoughts I was put on Prozac three years ago, and it was working fine. I gained a lot of weight because of it and decided to go off of it. When I started falling apart, I went back on it again and gained even more weight. Finally, I decided to talk to a psychiatrist who put me on Cymbalta instead. I was doing good, but then I happened to be out of town for a week from my job and forgot to take the pills with me. When I got back home, I just didn't want to take them anymore. I got horrible withdrawal symptoms, including brain zaps, which were painless but extremely uncomfortable. I've been off medication for three and a half weeks now. And I don't know what's worse, the terrible mood swings or my anxiety every time I become sad thinking, what did I do? Is it going to kill me this time? Oh man, I relate to that. And I have just decided after many times trying to go off meds to just take what I need. Because what are the side effects? If if you are somebody that requires meds, and I think... Very often, meds are overprescribed, but I also think there's a lot of people that need to be or could benefit from meds that don't consider what are the side effects of not being on medication, if that's the only thing that can help you with a clinical issue. Darkest Secrets. I'm about to turn 31 and I've never had sex never been fully naked with another human being present never touched another person's genitalia and no one has touched mine i can't help but to think that this was this has this was caused maybe she meant uh, this has caused the endless number of hours my parents teachers and religious figures spent scaring me Oh, I think she meant this was caused by, and she just left the word by out, the endless number of hours my parents, teachers, and religious figures spent scaring me about sex and the sin that it is. All the horrible guilt and shame that was installed in me has caused a huge block on my mind that I can't even bring myself to think of having sex. In the past two years, I've been telling people I'm gay and I've been dating women because it feels safer. Women don't seem to pressure me to hurry up and have sex before we can say we're in a relationship, and even if it does get to that point, there will be no penis to enter my vagina. I'm physically scared of anything entering my vagina, even fingers or tampons. Part of me wonders, and will probably wonder forever, if I would have been normal exploring sex like everyone else earlier had I not been so traumatized about it before I even had any desire." Would I like it? Would it feel better with a man or a woman? Am I really gay? Or is it just convenient and less scary? Or because I was teased so much in my early 20s for being sexually approved? prude? Hell, everyone called me a lesbian so much. I figured I was and acted accordingly. And what am I going to do now? Go, ha ha, just kidding? I listen to people who are ashamed of being sexually promiscuous, and even though I know better, and I know it's just the opposite side of the same coin, I think, why are you complaining? I wish I could do that. That's awesome. Or are you bragging? You think you're better than me, don't you? I don't think I'll ever feel like a normal human being, and that hurts so bad. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I'll take any fantasies you have. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would tell parents, teachers, and anyone in a religious leadership position to stop perpetuating their own feelings of guilt and shame on the next generation. Oh, my God. Amen. A-fucking-men. And, you know, I was thinking as I was reading all the shame you're experiencing and the fears and, you know... Uh, I, I hope you're talking to a, a professional about it to work to work through this. And my thought is, it, you know, whether you're gay or not, it doesn't matter. Just ex- be authentic to yourself, honor what your body is feeling. You know, work on the emotions that are going on inside you. Because uh, I think until we can separate what our unfounded fears are. And what our trauma is from us not protecting ourselves and there being a valid fear that we need to break a tool out to deal with, uh, it's just such a confusing mess. And we go to the place of black and white thinking, shaming ourselves, and doing the compare and despair. What, if anything, do you wish for peace of mind? Have you shared these things with others? No, I would be too ashamed to talk to anyone about it. How do you feel after writing these things down? Sad. I just don't know what to do. I don't know that there is enough time in a lifetime to solve all the issues I have. There absolutely, absolutely is. You know what? I don't think the work ever is done, but it's not like a light switch where... You know, we put in years of work and all of a sudden things go from horrible to amazing overnight. It's just a gradual thing, but we're, we're worth putting that effort in. And I think the peace of mind, maybe I should just speak for myself, comes from knowing that I'm moving my feet, going to my support groups and doing what I can to realize who I am authentically and while I may never reach who it is that I aspire to be I'm at least moving in that direction rather than just sitting and hating myself and not dealing with my addictions or past traumas or parts of me that are selfish or etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Anyway, thank you for filling that out. This is a love filled out by a woman who calls herself ELO fan, and she writes, I love how our noses have the ability to sniff out nostalgia. Lately, it seems these random whiffs that transport me back to my adolescence are the only things that make me feel alive. Maybe it's because they remind me of a time when life was much simpler, a time when I was truly living. Oh my God, I love this one so much, and I immediately started thinking of all the smells that bring up childhood feelings, whether they're melancholy or happy or a combination of both. But I was thinking that smell when you open up a board game that's kind of old and it just has that, you can smell that cardboard in it. You can smell a little bit of how the smell of a house seeps into it. Um, I love the smell of a baseball mitt. I don't think I ever really appreciated it until I got away from playing baseball, you know, when I became an adult and I was no longer playing it, you know, and then play the occasional game of softball and you'd go find the mitt and would be like, oh, yeah, that smell. Airplane glue. So reminds me of building models as a kid. And sadly, the time I was 16 and there was no weed and so I inhaled glue. And, and one of my favorite smells is in the spring in the Midwest, and I'm sure other places this happens as well, when you start to get those warm days in March or April and the snow is melting and you can smell the earth thawing. And it's a combination of melting snow and earth. And it's so specific And there's that excitement that summer break is around the corner. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Daniel. He identifies as gay. He's in his 40s. He was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. He was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes it's difficult to remember exactly but i believe i was sexually abused by my father i also remember sex with a neighbor boy in his teens when i was still a boy and then i was raped as a late teen and later as a young adult it's hard not to see that as something i brought on myself no person is ever responsible for somebody raping them never never Darkest thoughts, I still have fantasies of being in that submissive position, being raped and abused. Darkest secrets, I would never want to harm anyone else, but I fantasize about realizing the abuse with me still as the victim, and that is extremely common. You know, a lot of times the things that turn us on are the very things that scare us or make us nervous or were traumatic in our earlier life. There's a great book called The Erotic Mind by a guy named Jack Morin, M-O-R-I-N. And it's a great book that talks about this and he backs it up with research. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, being forced to submit to someone. I I am ashamed to admit that. You should not be ashamed. We have no control over what turns us on. All we have control over is what we do with that. And if we are not hurting anyone, and how we express that what does it matter what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to i don't know exactly but since my main abuser has passed there are things we can never get to say what if anything do you wish for absolution oh man i know this is the pot calling the kettle black but you are so hard on yourself Have you shared these things with others? No, it would either hurt people too much or they wouldn't understand. There are people that would understand, and I think our mission in life is to find our emotional family, the people that do accept us for who we are and do listen and do support us and vice versa. How do you feel after writing these things down? Confused, disgusted, and a little bit cleansed. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? It was never your fault. Isn't it funny how we can give the advice that we ourselves just can't take in? This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Dr. Depressed. She writes, In my last two years of high school, my mental health was at an all-time low, and going to school felt like going to a slaughterhouse. Around that time, my mother and I noticed an old lady that would go to the same spot every day to feed stray cats while we were on our way to school. One of them came at first, and over time, it brought its buddies to the feast. This cat got so friendly, it would rub its head all over her legs and even lay on its back so she could pet its belly. The lady would always happily receive her feline friends and gave them many loving pets. Just being able to witness that made me feel grateful that I was around to see it, and it made me feel like waking up in the morning a little less dreadful. Best of all is that I never knew this lady, and she had no idea of the small impact of her kindness. Man, it's... I love that last part especially, is... It takes so little for us to improve somebody's sense of safety and beauty in the world. And yet we're always so caught up in our own shit that we forget. Just little acts of kindness. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself hot mess. She identifies as bisexual. Uh, She writes, I call it bi-flexible. It's technically hetero-flexible, but bi-flexible sounds funnier. I like to sleep with women. I just don't want to date one. She's in her 20s. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. She was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. When I was 16, my boyfriend wanted to have sex with me while my mom was home and in the other room. I said no over and over while trying to physically push him off of me until I eventually gave up fighting him off, realizing he was much stronger than I. It wasn't until I told a friend about it and he told me it was sexual abuse. For some reason, I didn't see it that way. Honestly, I didn't see it that way until a year ago and I'm now 27. After my friend informed me that was abuse, I brought it up to said boyfriend. He said he thought I was kidding when I was saying no and gave me an apology card. God, I wish I still had that card. What what is that section of the uh, drugstore? Birthdays. Anniversaries. Not respecting somebody's boundaries. She's also been emotionally abused. My mother put me on the Atkins diet in third grade. From that time until I lost 40 plus pounds from a growing amphetamine addiction, she would tell me to suck in and chin down when photos were being taken, including in front of people. She would have nervous breakdowns and physically hurt herself when I was a small child, terrified not knowing what to do. She had so much rage towards a child, and I never realized how unacceptable it was or that I didn't deserve it, no matter the circumstance. She would later depend on me to play the role of her therapist-slash-parent in her abusive relationships, to the point that I stayed in my hometown, went to the technical college to pursue the career she wanted me to, to make her proud, forgetting that it wasn't what I wanted. At my graduation ceremony from nursing school, she arrived late and went outside to smoke before it was over and before congratulating me. I also wanted her to make my favorite dinner that night, but she wouldn't. Just to name a few. Any positive experiences with the abusers? It's my mother. In a lot of ways, she is one of the strongest women I will ever meet. She did so much for my sister and I as a single mother working seven days a week. I honestly don't know how she did it. She coached our soccer teams, took us on vacations, and loved us so deeply. In therapy, years later, I came to realize that even when people have the best of intentions, sometimes it's just not enough. Darkest thoughts, my road rage is the reason I don't own a gun. Darkest secrets, I'm a functioning amphetamine and methamphetamine addict. I have my own apartment and putting myself through college for me this time without help from my parents despite their promise to do so if I were to return to school. To make ends meet, I've had sugar daddy relationships that in all honesty are borderline prostitution. But I don't feel bad about it. I feel any shame I do feel here and there. I feel any shame I do feel here and there is because I'm, quote, supposed to feel ashamed. Why would I wait tables for fucking assholes, in parentheses, I hate the general population, for minimum wage when I could have sex with a good looking 30 something and make $700 in less than an hour? Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. The type of porn I watch is usually forced, Or old man young girl i often masturbate to the thought of seducing my uncle my my aunt's husband sharing that feels cringy what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to i wish i could share my addiction to people close to me without judgment but i know they won't look at me the same despite my high functional life and accomplishments what about going to a support group and sharing that addiction with people that understand addiction What, if anything, do you wish for my family to work things out instead of pretending things didn't happen? And man, waiting around for that to happen and trying to manipulate it into happening is as crazy as any addiction. And it's so easy to fall into that because we just assume these roles. It's like this play that just keeps repeating and everybody knows their lines and nobody wants to rock the boat. And then when one person does, things change. A lot of people aren't happy, but generally the person that changes it up gets healthier and looks back and is glad that they stopped acting in that shitty play. Have you shared things, any of these things with others? My therapist, some of these things, she's kind of passive. Sometimes I feel like she just paraphrases the shit I say and I'm not sure how helpful the last year has been talking to her. How do you feel after writing these things down? Better yet vulnerable. Thank you for sharing all that, man. And there's also a great resource for anybody who's experienced sexual trauma no matter how long ago. It's called the Rape and Incest National Network and the, the website is dot And, you know, you might try uh, instead of your therapist or in addition to your therapist, um, trying to find some resources to deal with that sexual trauma because, man, that shit goes deep. That leaves scars that are um, that can be healed but but take a concerted effort. And things that are seemingly unrelated to the sexual trauma uh, can really hold us back from becoming the, the person that we want to be and having the relationships that we want to have. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself me. She writes, I've been dating a guy for several months now and have started to get to know his mother. In the short time... I've gotten to know her. She has been nothing but kind and welcoming to me. She's an active listener and takes time to really listen to the things that I tell her. She also goes out of her way to notice little things like what kind of beverages I like and without being asked begins to stock them in the fridge. The other day I was consciously trying to take stock of all the people in my life who really listen and have taken the time to get to know me when I realized this. I'm so grateful to have people like this in my life. I love that. I love that. And I experienced that with my my ex wife's mother when when she and I years ago began dating. Yeah, I began dating my my ex's <laughs> mother. Um, when I started to get to know her mother, I, I was like, "Wow, this woman really pays attention to me." and You know, she would have my favorite sandwich there when I came to visit. And it was just such an amazing feeling to have, to feel this unconditional love, but with boundaries and not in a smothering way. Um, This is a happy moment filled out by Sweet Caroline. She writes, I have a degree in art and photography, but ended up working in accounting. I hated my job and the environment was toxic. I tried to get my boss to change things around to help alleviate some of my anxiety. For example, I asked to have my own cubicle because having someone behind me all day makes my anxiety skyrocket. He he told me I should just find a new job after seven years with the company. They were not willing to accommodate me. The next day, I was crying my eyes out. I couldn't imagine getting a new job. I couldn't even type up my resume. My boyfriend found me in this state and said, you could just quit and take some time off and then find something new. It never occurred to me I could do this. He was willing to support me while I took time off. I told him I felt so broken that all my past trauma and my mental illness had finally broken me. He said, I don't see a broken girl. I see an exhausted girl. I see a girl who needs a break. I cried and cried all weekend and quit my job on Monday. I took some time off, spent whole days on the couch, watched so much Netflix, spent time in nature and with friends, and after about a month, started looking for a new job. The first job I found was for a camera store. The hours are perfect. The location is perfect. Best of all, I get to work in the field that I love. I start next week, and I am so excited most of all i'm so proud of myself for quitting that job letting my boyfriend support me and taking that time for myself things are still hard and i still struggle with anxiety every day but man things are really starting to look up for me i have faith in myself for the first time ah fuck! do i love that god do i love when i see people stand up for themselves and the times that I've done it in my life, it's I feel taller, stronger, more confident, more relaxed, more content. But it's so scary, man. The unknown can be so scary. And we get so used to these little routines that we get stuck in. Sometimes it's it's like our comfort zone can suffocate us but it feels so familiar. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed today's uh, episode and welcome any new listeners. And um, just remember if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, you're feeling alone, you are not. You are not alone. There's so many of us that feel the way you feel inside. You just can't tell by looking at us. And never forget that you're not alone. And thanks for listening.